Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Podcast on Radio Free Nashville 107.1 and 103.7, streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. The people are absolutely wanting change, and we don't know what's ahead here, but we we do know that there is tremendous support building within the United States and worldwide uh, to fight for justice, human rights, and climate change. That was Cindy Peister, and yes, we are going to hear more from Cindy and her colleague, Dr. Omar Clay, in this part two of the interview we started last week. But first, my name is Jim Wolkemuth, and I'm here with fellow Vietnam veteran Harvey Bennett. We're members of Veterans for Peace. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Just go to veteransforpeace.org. This radio and show, show and podcast is on stations across the country thanks to the Pacifica Radio Network. We're also on SoundCloud, Anchor Podcast, Spotify, and your phone podcast app. Just search Veterans for Peace. The Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by you, the listener, because it is you that keeps Radio Free Nashville and on the air. And as a result, this radio show is then picked up by the Pacifica Radio Network so that we are heard across the country. So if you think this is important, just go to RadioFreeNashville.org and click on the Donate button and keep Harvey and I on the air in every time zone in the U.S. And if you support the work of Veterans for Peace, and I know you should, go to our website, VeteransForPeace.org. We've got a Donate button there too. Okay, before we talk to Cindy and Omar, we must remember Dr. King, whose birthday was just last Monday. And as in years past, Harvey and I have tried to show how the words of Dr. King ring true today. And so I've taken just a small portion of the Beyond Vietnam speech that Dr. King gave on April 4th, 1967, and I have slightly edited it to show just how relevant he is today. So here's Dr. King speaking to us today. There comes a time when silence is betrayal, but the mission to which they call us is the most difficult one. Even when pressed by the demands of inner truth, Men do not easily assume the task of opposing their government's policy, especially in time of war. There has never been such a monumental dissent during a war by the American people. This reveals that millions have chosen to move beyond the prophesying of smooth patriotism to the high grounds of firm dissent based upon the mandates of conscience and the reading of history. Now, of course, one of the difficulties in speaking out today grows out of the fact that there are those who are seeking to equate dissent with disloyalty. It's a dark day in our nation when high-level authorities will seek to use every method to silence dissent. Something is happening and people are not going to be silent. The truth must be told. And so this morning I speak to you on this issue because I am determined to take the gospel seriously. So I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor. Perhaps the more tragic recognition of reality took place when it became clear to me 
that the war was doing far more than devastating the hopes of the poor at home. They ask if our own nation wasn't using massive doses of violence to solve its problem. And I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government, America, and most of its newspapers. There's something strangely inconsistent about a nation and a press that will praise you when you say be nonviolent, but will curse and damn you when you say be nonviolent toward little brown children. There's something wrong with that press. To me, the relationship of this ministry to the making of peace is so obvious that I sometimes marvel at those who ask me why I am speaking against the war. Could it be that they do not know that the good news was meant for all men, for communists and capitalists, for their children and ours, for black and white, for revolutionary and conservative? Can I threaten them with death? Or must I not share with them my life? There will be no meaningful solution until some attempt is made to know these people and hear their broken cries. And the press generally won't tell us these things, but God told me to tell you this morning. The truth must be told. Languish under our bombs and consider us the real enemy. We have destroyed their two most cherished institutions, the family and the village. We have destroyed their land and their crop. This is a role our nation has taken, the role of those who make peaceful revolutions impossible. I'm convinced that if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must rapidly begin to shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. When machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, militarism, and economic exploitation are incapable of being conquered. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our present policies. The Western arrogance of feeling that it has everything to teach others and nothing to learn from them is not just. A true revolution of values will lay hands on the world order and say of war, this way of settling differences is not just. This business of burning human beings, filling our nation's homes and with orphans and widows, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. That was Dr. King, and of course, you can find the whole Beyond Vietnam speech on YouTube, and I recommend. No, that's not that's not strong enough. Now, I urge you to find it and listen to it. And if we truly want to honor Dr. King, then we need to take the action he was calling for nearly 60 years ago. Now, do it to honor Dr. King. With that, 
Today we're going to do part two and follow up with Cindy and Omar. As you remember, we started our interview with both of them on COP28 last week, but really expanded to so much more. And you can find that show in its entirety on Spotify, SoundCloud, by just searching Veterans for Peace. So as you remember, Cindy is a founding member and on the steering committee of Veterans for Peace Climate Crisis and Militarism Project and a member of the Women's International League of Peace and Freedom and their International Environmental Working Group. She's also a member of the International Convocation of UU Women. Dr. Clay, her colleague, is a physicist and science educator. Omar has been promoting science literacy and speaking on environmental and climate change challenges for the last two decades. So, on with part two with a little follow-up from Cindy and Omar. But I want to tell you some information that I thought was pertinent in terms of Israel going in and doing this genocide in Gaza. I wanted to talk about the discovery of natural gas off of Gaza's coastline. There's more than a trillion cubic feet of natural gas 22 miles off the coast of Gaza. And legally, it's under the jurisdiction of the Palestinian National Authority as a result of the Oslo Accords. Israel forces, however, have prevented the Palestinians, as we know, from accessing the offshore resources. What's going on right now currently is that the jurisdictions uh, over the Palestinians is divided with Hamas representing the Gaza Strip, while the Palestinian Authority is the head in the West Bank. But in June of 2023, despite the uh, natural gas fields legally being under the Palestinian Authority, the Israeli government gave preliminary approval for its development. And they said that they were requiring security coordination with the Palestinian Authority and Egypt. But then December 8th, after the carpet bombing of Gaza had been going on quite a while, dozens of Israeli armored vehicles raided an area that was less than 0.6 miles from the Palestinian Authority's headquarters in Ramallah in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. So uh, according to Ismat Mansour, uh, Ramallah-based analysts, there was no security pretext for this rage. Uh, And afterwards, Netanyahu charged the Palestinian Authority with trying to destroy Israel in stages to more or less justify that, I think. Uh, Another tidbit of information that I thought was relevant here was that four years after the Palestinian Authority had been given this uh, control over these natural gas off their coast, Yezer Arafat, um, the president of Palestinian National Authority and uh, chairman of the PLO, uh, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, died unexpectedly. And a number of years after his death, his body was uh, disinterred. And it was found out that by a Swiss team of scientists paid by Mrs. Arafat and the Palestinian Authority, that Arafat actually died as a result of ingesting radioactive plutonium, a byproduct of the chemical processing of uranium. Uh, This is artificially produced in uh, nuclear reactors or a particle accelerator. So Israel denied that responsibility. But I just think that 
the timing here is interesting. Israel has already given approval for the development of this gas field, and they're getting rid of uh, the Palestinians in Gaza, left and right. No, that's um, very important. It's beyond just mass murder and genocide, it's just another motive for Israel to level Gaza. Well, it calls it into a context that's very little known and yeah. not discussed at all. In, in terms of the war impact, so, I mean, what we're looking at is... Uh, the impacts on the natural environment, the impacts on the uh, infrastructure. In Gaza, it, it's particularly concrete. And concrete uh, is, is one of the worst materials in the world in terms of what goes into creating it. Uh, so uh, the impacts from the destruction of that concrete, which will have to be replaced um, someday, eventually it would be thought, that that's huge. Uh, they've already lost, um, you know, their natural habitat in terms of any sort of ground cover, except perhaps, you know, like the olive orchards and that kind of thing. But the emissions from the weapons that are being dropped on them, which are quite significant, uh, 2,000 uh, pound bombs are are being dropped on Gaza. You know, they've been carpet bombed with um, all kinds of uh, weaponry that the Israel has, most of it coming from the United States, of course. And they've even used a white phosphorus, as you probably know, against yeah. uh, Gaza. So all of this is impacting the atmosphere as these emissions go up, and it's impacting the water table, it's impacting the air quality that I don't have any idea how these people are even breathing. Anyway, it, it's it's really quite significant. Uh, Gaza Strip is only 25 uh, miles long and five miles wide. And the amount of tonnage uh, that's being dropped on them is just, uh, Israel's trying to cover that up now. At first, they were more or less bragging about it, but now they're trying to cover up the weapons that they have. They came out with a memo uh, that was leaked saying that no no journalist was allowed to uh, even delve into that subject. So they're really trying to protect themselves. And of course, this is probably all related to the fact that South Africa has taken Israel to the International Criminal Court for genocide. So things are happening. And also the United States has being held into legal account by the Center for Constitutional Rights. It's not actually the United States. It's President Biden and the Secretary of State and also the military are all being sued by uh, Center for Constitutional Rights uh, because there's a legal document that the United States has signed that um, our officials are legally obligated to play any role in a, a genocide and, in fact, to do everything they can to stop mm. it. That was done, Cindy. We got to know what we're fighting. I think you sounded, coming out of COP, uh, uh, this COP of optimism. Well, yeah. Uh, you know, the optimism that a lot of the activists, uh, particularly those I really actually know that I've talked to and that I've been in there, uh, attended their webinars and everything, is just that this whole concern of peace for climate justice really caught on. People liked it. They passed out buttons. They passed out uh, bumper stickers and people responded to it. People are sick of these wars. People are absolutely disgusted with the United States right now. I mean, when I went to COP27, uh, my sense of being there as a U.S. citizen was really, dude, 
don't even bother to talk to us about anything until you get your government under control. Nobody said that to me directly. That was the underlying message that I got. I I remember sitting next to some Europeans, you know, we were out uh, delegates and we were sitting outside having coffee or something. And they were talking about Americans, like uh, the American activists all come here, you know, they're going to really do something, but then look what's going on in their country. I mean, there is a sense of tremendous dissatisfaction with uh, U.S. lies. The people around the world, I mean, we were held in high esteem, as you know, that is really fading. Uh, people are tired of what we're doing. What did Biden do? He was calling for sanctions against Ukraine. Well, you know what? A lot of the countries on the African continent were going, good luck with that, because Russia has treated them much better than the United States when we're making deals with them. And as you look at uh, the continent of Africa, what you can see is that they, they're being exploited for their water. They're being exploited for their rare earth uh, minerals. Uh, AFRICOM is there in full force. Um, I didn't even know it at the time, I, but I looked it up and, and uh, the United States was holding uh, drone bombing campaigns. God, African countries were mobilizing to call against these drone strikes. I mean, there's a lot going on around the world that the United States is doing that we don't really even know. It's not translated to us. The U.S. military is not transparent in what they do. Mm-hmm. And and so one of the good things of COP is that we talk to each other. We network like crazy. We share our our handouts, our um our business cards, our information. And yeah. that is really, really powerful. The other thing at COP is that, you know, in, in the society in general. Uh, people uh, like me, uh, just a, a peace activist, longtime peace activist, I don't have opportunity to speak to my own state department. I don't have an opportunity to speak to Al Gore. I was able to speak to him and give him literature from uh, Wilf and also uh, from uh, the Climate Crisis and Militarism Project. I was able to tell him that if it hadn't been for uh, G.W. Bush's uh, control in the uh, Supreme Court, he would have been our president. And he said, I agree. And not only that, uh, delegates that are actually on the ground at these COPs have access to the heads of state from around the world. There's a lot of good that happens at COP. But we have to recognize that in terms of the final documents and in terms of the power and influence of the COP president, that we're really hitting the wall on that. I don't know exactly how we will overcome it, but the media was a huge help uh, at COP28 by calling out all of this stuff. The media is actually good on our side this time. Well, the schism. Mm-hmm. Uh, between what's expected to come out of COP uh, was just so wide that they had to do that really to be authentic in any way at all. The other thing is that's really helping, although it's the worst possible help that we don't really want, is that all over the world, there's no place in the world that uh, climate change isn't impacting in very harsh ways. For example, uh, it, the African continent is just devastated 
by uh, climate impacts. The children and the elderly are, are dying as a result of uh, cholera, for example. You know, they don't have fresh water. The floods come in and destroy the sanitation. All of these things are going on. That kind of thing is going on all over the world. And they also see that the United States really is not coming through with the funding, and neither are the other countries uh, from the global north. One of the main things that came out of COP2, I think, is how strongly the island nations, there was a, a South American country that came out and spoke very, very strongly about what was going on at COP. Was that Bolivia? Uh, I think it was Bolivia, but I'm not going to swear to it. One of the things that you had mentioned to me that was meaningful out of COP28 was the um, the stance of the World Bank, which is, is oh, not known oh, to yeah, be a yeah. progressive institution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Did, oh, did, absolutely. Did that? Uh, yeah, that was really another wonderful thing that came out of COP that was not really very well discussed, but the climate financing. So all of the island nations um, and, the, and the poor nations, they didn't walk away from the COP happy over climate financing. However, there is real, true movement on climate financing, and I'm hoping that we'll see it this year. Uh, what happened at COP27, the leading climate hero that I walked away from climate 27 was a woman named Mia Motley. She's the prime minister of Barbados, a little tiny uh, country, and she and her team wrote something called the Bridgetown Initiative. Well, what the Bridgetown Initiative was, it addressed the economic uh, stress that poor countries are facing because um, she said already the global South, the island nations, impoverished nations, they are already saddled with unbearable debt. And then on top of that, they're uh, dealing with outrageous climate impacts. There were outrageous climate impacts in Barbados. They had a heavy impact on Barbados. And then COVID came along. And of course, they didn't have access to vaccines. Uh, COVID hit them very, very powerfully. They were dealing with that. In fact, they weren't able even, many countries weren't able to even send delegates uh, to COP because they were so impacted by COVID. Then they have these uh, financing arrangements with people like the, with entities like the World Bank that just were just horrific. So the Bridgebound, uh, Bridgetown uh, initiative called for a revamping of all of the rules and regulations with special drawing rights for uh, climate and conflict uh, stressed areas. And that was incredibly popular at COP27. Uh, it got tremendous support. Many nations signed on to it. And at COP27, Al Gore made a statement there that the World Bank president uh, really needed to step down because of his outrageous uh, lending practices that were gutting African countries because they charged him such high interest. Well, that had teeth. And the World Bank president uh, did step down in 2023 in January, and he has been replaced by a man named Anjay Banga, and he was at COP28, and I heard him as speak 
But the World Bank now, it actually went and got information from Mia Motley's team about what they needed to do to help the situation. And what they're saying is that they are uh, devoting 45% of annual financing to climate projects for uh, the fiscal year of 24-25. That's something that's never been heard of before. 45% of their uh, financing from the World Bank. Uh, Also, the IMF uh, was a positive presence, I would say, at COP. Although, again, I have to qualify that, you know, the impacts of this were not seen this year. But they are working to analyze the national, regional, and global response to climate change and foster cooperation in climate finance, carbon pricing, data, and technology transfer. And then uh, they really want international cooperation. And both World Bank and IMF are working with something called the multilateral development banks, which I really wasn't aware of, but they're like uh, regional uh, banks that the uh, countries around the world um, deal with as nation states. So uh, they're working together. Also, the Green Fund, uh, there is a woman who runs the Green Fund that uh, the things that she's doing uh, that are very, very uh, progressive in terms of reaching out, making special uh, lightened restrictions on countries that are hit by conflict and climate. because. They're only getting like $2 per capita a year uh, for these countries uh, funding where other nations are at least getting 126 per per person in their countries uh, for climate funding, things like that, gross inequities. Uh, So there is a huge movement. Uh, on climate financing that does seem promising. Cindy, I just want to make sure I heard you correctly because the World Bank and the IMF are actually doing something good? Well, the World Bank is saying again that they are devoting 45% of annual financing to climate projects for the fiscal year of 2024 and 2025. That's really very concrete. Uh, The IMF is saying that they are working to analyze the national, regional, and global responses to climate change and foster cooperation in climate finance, carbon pricing, data, and technology transfer. And they say that they're uniquely situated to to help in that area. Uh, That's less concrete. So they did seem to be taking this seriously. I mean, I guess the proof is in the pudding. We won't know until we see how things unfold over the coming year and at COP29, but words are cheap. So we'll see. Mm. And then Dr. Omar Clay added this. You know, I think that there, uh, surprisingly for a science paper, um, uh, James Hansen came out with some policy advocacy. He came out with some policy positions in his, in his uh, perspective piece. And some of these are things that I think I certainly agree with, and I think a lot of people agree with. And also responding a little bit to what Cindy just shared about the um, COP, um, you know, we've we've all understood for a long time that the fossil fuel industry is a major impediment to addressing this issue. And I, it needs to be clearly stated that we've known in, in the scientific community for a very long time, and the fossil fuel industry itself has known for since at least the late 70s, that we have to cut all carbon emissions if we're not going to have climate change. So Al Jabir's crazy statement that we don't need to you know, shift off of fossil fuels is just is 50 years out of date. 
So there's that. So we we absolutely have to get to zero emissions. That's an obvious thing that that, that Hanson and, and anybody who cares about this issue knows. Hanson made a few other statements that I just want to bring up really quickly. One is he, he specifically calls out the need for global cooperation. This is also very obvious, right? Here we are, we're, we're having these outrageous, tragic wars with one another, creating a ton of carbon in the process, uh, achieving and, and maintaining these military uh, positions with respect to one each other, conflict rather than cooperation. And yet we have a major challenge in front of us you know, with global climate change, right? And sometimes you hear people will say things like, well, just imagine if there was extraterrestrials that came and tried to invade the planet. Wouldn't we all join together to, to address that? And yet we have we have that challenge. It's not extraterrestrials. It's, you know, just go look in the mirror. It's us. But we, we still have to address it as a, as a global community. So this is another obvious thing that, at least in the scientific community, is now in the literature in a way that I haven't seen it before. But the, the big things that, that I think that uh, Hansen really offered in his paper for policy advocacy that I would like to repeat here is, first of all, he recognizes what, what everybody here knows is that money is the problem. And it's not just money in an abstract sense, but it's oil money. It's, it's the money that the fossil fuel industry has used to corrupt the political process in the United States and around the world. You know, at this point, you know, the IMF estimates that uh, in, in 2020, the IMF estimated that we spend about $5.9 trillion globally in fossil fuel subsidies. Okay, so that's about 6.8% of the global GDP that we're subsidizing the fossil fuel industry, which is destroying the planet. Now, you know, it's not all on them. We're the ones burning it. You know, they're just giving it, you know, they're selling it to us. But still, this is being called out very, very directly. How do we address this issue of the fossil fuel money uh, corrupting our politics, corrupting our, our ability to respond to a global challenge? Well, uh, there's a very simple uh, concept called carbon fee and dividend. This is not a carbon cap or carbon trade, uh, which have lots of problems with them. The carbon fee and dividend concept is this. Whatever country you are, you charge a fee for, for the amount of uh Carbon, hydrocarbons uh, that any corporation retrieves from your territory. So maybe it's $15 per ton, as an example. So whatever it is, natural gas, whether it's, it's oil or whether it's coal, that's immediately charged to that fossil fuel industry. Now that money is immediately taken and just given out to the people of that country in terms of a dividend. What this does is, of course, the fossil fuel industry is just going to pass that charge right on to the, to the people. So what, what's the deal? Well, what it means is that high consumers, if you're somebody who's jet-setting around the world and, and having great fun with your mini yachts and, and mini cars, uh, you're going to be using a lot of carbon, and you're going to be paying a lot of that carbon tax. And, and you'll get the same dividend as somebody who doesn't hardly drive at all, who's biking to, biking to work. And so, so the point is that it's a wealth redistribution. So that's one thing. So it charges the, the fossil fuel industry for pulling the carbon out of the ground. And then it takes that money and it just gives it right back to the citizens of that country in a flat carbon dividend. So it takes money out of the hands of the wealthy, puts it in the hands of the poor based on just how much uh, a carbon they're burning. The other aspect of this is that you also charge a duty, a carbon duty on any country that doesn't have a carbon fee and dividend. So if as an example, China chooses not to have a carbon fee and dividend, then all of their products that are coming into the U.S. would have a duty on them based on what the carbon footprint of that product was. What that does is incentivize China to say, OK, we're going to have our own carbon fee and dividend here in China. And so now we're going to do the same <clears> thing <throat> you did, and now you're not going to charge us this duty. 
So it incentivizes the individual consumer to reduce their carbon consumption, incentivizes the, the country to uh, implement this program, and it charges the fossil fuel industry. And since we already are subsidizing the fossil fuel industry so much, we, we've just got to cut these subsidies out. It's, it's ridiculous. So the carbon fee and dividend is one thing. The other point that, that Hansen makes, and I think that we all know is true, is that, that our governance structure has been corrupted by this money. It's special interest money has repeatedly, systematically undermined the ability of the people to be spoke to speak speak what they need and and have a government that represents them uh, and their needs. So his suggestion here is that it, this isn't unique to him, but if we have ranked voting system, the ranked voting system is the idea that all the people running for office all all uh, get their names. Up on, uh, and you get to write, I want this person more than anybody else, number one, but I would choose this person, number two, and then I would choose this person, number three. And if, for instance, climate warrior Bernie Sanders is a third party, and you wanted to vote for climate warrior Bernie Sanders, but you can't because you realize that if he's he's not the most popular person, then that means that the second most popular person might win, and that by, that person might be like the ex-president and just say, drill, drill, drill. And so you definitely don't want that. So you end up voting against that other person. With a, with a ranked voting system, you vote for who you want first. But if that person's not in the top two, then you get your second choice. If that person's not in the top two, then you get your third choice until you get somebody who's in the top two. What that does is allow for the third party to emerge. And so Hansen's saying, look, we, we need to put this ranked voting system in play. I think a lot of, uh, of people that you know, pro-democracy want this as well. And he's suggesting that we need a party that, uh, that uh, doesn't take special interest money. Pretty straightforward. It's the problem with the two-party system that we have in the U.S. It's a problem around the world. Is it that our politicians are being bought off? So the ranked voting system would probably really address that. And then the other thing that I just, I guess I have to mention from a scientific perspective is that things are now so bad that going to zero carbon emissions is not going to be enough. And in the future, we're actually going to have to start working on uh, reversing the existing heating. There's a number of techniques that we're going to probably need to employ. Some of them seem quite scary. What we need to do is understand them. So we need to study those seriously now because we don't have that much time left. Is there a name to James Hansen's paper that we can search? If you if you type in carbon fee and dividend in okay. Hansen, that, that is a paper in itself. Okay. Uh, and then if you type in, and then global warming in the pipeline is this paper that came out last year, okay. where it's just a really broad ranging paper. Some of it's highly technical from a science perspective, but some of it you would be able to pick up really quickly. I do encourage people to take a look at it. Just maybe look at the conclusions. And of course, to get all that done, we're going to have to need some willingness on the existing power structure to actually move in that direction. And that's, well, that's just something to work on. Yeah, it is. There is a little bit of positive news as well, right? Because the, the latest polls suggest that people are motivated to address these issues. Mm -hmm. There was a global poll by uh, IPSOS that suggests that globally 80% of people are willing to make changes to how they live and, and work in order to support a more sustainable society. Pew, a poll of Americans, it suggests, and this is in spite of decades of disinformation from a fossil fuel industry, as you guys well know, and is 72% of Americans want to want the U.S. Uh, wind and solar power. 70% say that we need to make lifestyle changes to address climate change. Some 69% say that they want us to be carbon neutral by 2050, and over 60% of Americans, whether it's true or not, claim that they have already made some lifestyle changes in order to address these issues. So that's some really positive news that I think is worth keeping in mind because we have serious challenges in front of us. Excellent. Cindy? Also, just a word from Jeffrey Sachs, who says that the U.S. support for Gaza is so unpopular worldwide 
that people are wanting to move away from U.S. currency. So all of that is very, very bleak in terms of what our own government is doing uh, with war and militarization. But like Omar said, the people are absolutely wanting change. And we don't know what's ahead here. But we do know that there is tremendous support building within the United States and worldwide to fight for justice, human rights, and climate change. So even after that wonderful and thorough discussion, Cindy and Omar said, you know, there's still more. And so we invited them back. Well, you know, the one thing that I really need to get in this, uh, or VFP is going to just try me. (laughs) (laughs) Then let's do it. Yeah, I need to cover the actions and then call out the the slideshows that they uh, offer. So I'd like to add something about actions we can do to deal with all this. Go for it. As we look at the dire situation that we're actually in and we ask, what can we do? There's actually a lot of things that we can do, but I think probably the most critical is that we've got to phase out fossil fuels. So the Willow projects and the projects uh, for oil that Biden and natural gas that Biden approved last year, I'd like to see those rolled back. You know, I'm not sure exactly how that can be done, but I think that's something we should definitely keep in mind. Um, You know, Antonio Guterres tells that um, the fossil fuels are actually incompatible with human life, and he's right. We only have until 2030 to reduce our fossil fuel emissions uh, by 45%. So that's, that's really, really a big amount. So one of the actions that's going on all over the world in various areas is divesting from fossil fuels. There's been a lot of pressure globally to do that. So that's one step we can take. I actually know somebody who's gone to the uh, extent of becoming a stockholder in a fossil fuel company. And I understand now this would be for those who can afford to do this, which isn't just everybody and not all of us. But if you are able to buy sufficient shares, you can then use those shares to speak up in stockholder meetings and propose resolutions. And then the next step after proposing resolution is to convince the shareholders that you're right. And that has become an avenue of action. Of course, we're protesting and they're protesting all over the world. And I was so proud of Veterans for Peace and Allies uh, for joining the September march and demonstration uh, in New York City that was calling for divesting uh, from fossil fuels or phasing out fossil fuels. I think Jim Ryan and Ellen were both arrested doing that. So uh, another thing that can be done is uh, running ads in in the media, uh, writing letters to the editor, uh, trying to get pieces in, in the paper, trying to get things on the radio like we're doing right now on television. So those are avenues to phasing out fossil fuels. The next thing I'd like to mention is that there's a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty that was put forward in 2015 by a number of the island nations, and that is a binding treaty. So if we were able to convince our governments to sign on to that, it would be amazing. A lot of the things that go on at COP are not really binding, 
this one is. Another way uh, that we can increase awareness uh, about fossil fuels and their impact on the environment has directly to do with the impacts of militarism and war on climate. The CCMP, the Climate Crisis Militarism Project, actually offers free PowerPoint presentations on this subject to, to acquaint people and inform them about the tremendous impact that militarism has on the climate. And we can gear those towards the needs of whatever group we're speaking to in terms of how long we talk and any particular focuses that might be needed. And all you have to do is get on the website and and, uh, check that out. We speak to community groups, environmental groups, high schools, colleges. So it's just a great opportunity. And also another thing to uh, increase awareness, I think, is improving media access and education for science and climate change literacy. The general population, I'm, I'm not sure how well educated everybody is actually on climate change literacy. They I mean, people can get through college with the barest science, so they aren't always geared to understanding. Another thing I would like to call out is for all of us to rethink what national security actually means. When we think national security, we automatically jump to militarism, right? Because we're kind of geared that way at this point. But our military budget, $876.9 billion uh, for this year, and that doesn't include, of course, a, a large number of other expenses like the VA and the uh, IEA. Yeah, the nuclear program, uh, the intelligence community, all, all uh, parts of the State Department mm-hmm. uh, that are, it's, it's really well over a trillion, like $1.2 trillion more. So as long as we have those kind of military budgets, we can't fund climate to the extent we need to. Also, that level of funding furthers climate impacts because it's all about manufacturing these massive fighter jets and building the use of more fossil fuels into the system for the next 30 years or 40. You know, a lot of people think, well, we have to have these huge budgets 876 billion as a basis uh, compared to the rest of the world is just incredible. I mean, you know, we spend more on the military than the next 11 countries. Uh, China is spending 292 billion, mm-hmm. and Russia is at 86.4 billion. And here, here they are; there are big enemies. So, uh, but not only is 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 the money spent a factor. But also the emissions from these wars. I mean, there was 120 million tons of CO2 equivalent as a result of just the first 12 months of the Ukraine war. There are things that we can do. I mean, peace is one of them. We don't need this war in Ukraine. We need to have a ceasefire. Those people are really suffering. And it doesn't look like it's going anywhere. I mean, um, Gaza has probably exceeded Ukraine at this point. Yeah, what's going on in Gaza is just horrific. We don't have the actual numbers on that yet, but they will be coming down the pipe. But the whole concept is we've got to have peace in order to really fight climate. It's more than 5% globally every year of the emissions that are going into the atmosphere. So, And then we saw going on in Yemen. Are we going to go into a regional war now? Biden sure looks like he's itching for it. And he was, you know, he said that was the top priority was to avoid uh, the war from spreading. And he chose to to risk that rather than 
just have a ceasefire. Oh, it, it's it's really, it's, really it's devastating. So I'd rather than calling a ceasefire in Israel at a time when the International Court on Justice is addressing this for war yeah. crimes, the mm-hmm. U.S. is going to broaden it and go into Yemen. I can report that uh, Charleston got in the news with Joe Biden. You know, he came to Charleston, where I am, uh, on Monday to Mother Emanuel AME Church, where the Dylan Roof killed all those parishioners. And it oh was a Trump speech, you know, for his campaign. It was not anything having to do with the church, except that was, you know, the venue he wanted to exploit. And uh, a group of us were in the park called Marion Square, about a block and a half from the church. So we were just, just screaming, cease flowering now, as soon as we saw the motorcade. So we were pretty sure he heard us, but pleasantly surprised that others had gotten into this church and you know, made national, international news by disrupting this. That was the perfect thing to do. <laughs> oh, Harvey, I'm so proud of you. Exciting. I'm sure you're doing it. I'm really proud of VFP. I mean, we're out there, you know, we're calling it out and it needs to get called out. Ventura chapter of Veterans for Peace 112. Um, we've got a group in, in Ventura of interns for a just Palestine. And uh, we were very active uh, around, oh, 2010, when the Mavi Marmara and uh, the attacks on that ship when they were carrying humanitarian supplies into Gaza. Uh, But then the the Mavi Marmara was attacking. But, you know, we were very active during that time. And we came together again with this one. And BFP 112 is right out there with us. And it's just really nice that we're having protests on the street every week. I'm really proud of Veterans for Peace for their stand on this. Cindy, tell the audience again where they can find more information about the uh, climate crisis and militarism project. Yeah, just go to the Veterans for Peace website, and then they have different things you can click on. You want to click on national projects, and the climate crisis and militarism project is a national project. We are going into our fourth year and been very, very active and worked so hard. And But then uh, once you're in there, you, there's all kinds of things that you can look at in terms of uh, actions and what can be done. And one of them is asking for these uh, presentations. And we really appreciate the opportunity to reach out across the United States and, and even beyond to give these presentations. And, and we've had really excellent feedback from the people that have watched them. There's listeners out there that if you know somebody in your own community that you know might appreciate a, a free presentation like this by uh, veterans or uh, associate members, it's mostly veterans, like talking about what the military impacts are and what goes on right here in the United States in terms of our own military impacts, it's really eye-opening. A lot of people have really been surprised. And I think it's important because even though our attention seems to be at Yemen, at Gaza, at Israel, at Ukraine, all of this is connected. Jim, that's so true. And I, I mean, I've always appreciated everything that VFP stands for. You know, my husband came back from Vietnam and nobody wanted to hear what he had to say. They didn't want to know. You know, I don't know if that was your, your experience, but being able to stand up and tell people, hey, please don't thank me for serving this war. It was hell. For me, I, I could barely come home and see what my husband was suffering as a result from that war without speaking out. I mean, mm-hmm. there's no choice, really, uh, I think, for a lot of veterans' families to not speak out and for the veterans themselves to speak out as best they're able. 
So I, I just love VFP. I appreciate uh, a lot that's going on and what you guys are doing, especially with this radio show. It's just a wonderful opportunity to educate the public. Um, you know, I did have a couple more things that I could say in terms of actions. If we Go have for a it. little bit more. Um, <clears throat> well, of course, we have to get special interests, fossil fuel interests out of our elections. One of the suggestions... Um, that Dr. Clay mentioned in our first um, episode of this talk was going to ranked voting. And uh, I think ranked voting, if we were able to pull that off, is really a huge step in the right direction because as it is, okay, look at this choice we've got right now. Are we going to vote for Biden or are we going to vote for ugh, what's going to be on the, on the Republican Party? We don't know yet, but it doesn't look good. Could it be Nikki Haley? Could it be Trump himself? I mean, we're, we're always in this situation where voting for the lesser of two evils, where if we had ranked voting, you know, the possibility exists that we could get somebody that's on our list that's not one of those mm-hmm. two, you know. So anyway, I'm calling for that. Um, And then, of course, uh, in terms of finances, financing the wars, um, I think we need to withdraw all of our financial and military support for Israel until there's a a permanent ceasefire in place. And then there has to be some sort of statehood for the Palestinian people. Uh, But in the meantime, I think we're making huge mistakes to fund this war. Uh, that's money that deprives us from dealing with climate and human needs and just um, using it for death and destruction. Uh, and so uh, also the same, of course, with Ukraine, all the money we've spent there. We need to negotiate and have a ceasefire in Ukraine, too. That's the main things that I really wanted to call out in terms of actions that we can take. I mean, I'm sure all of us could put on our rain caps and think of others. Because this is a place where you can really use creativity in terms of how we're going to fight the uh, situation we're in. But uh, thank you for letting me put that out there. I appreciate it. Well, you're very welcome. Dr. Clay. Thanks. I I really wanted to just, uh, one, support what Cindy was just saying about having to rethink our concept of national uh, security and global security. And then you, you followed up on that, Jim, really connecting. You know, we have a real common cause. I mean, you know, there, there are, you know, there are members of the public who have, you know, specific interests, you know, uh, people who've had, you know, who are veterans understand the real tragedy of war and the pain that are associated with it. There are people that are driven by trying to address poverty or health care or environmental issues. And all of these things, we're, we have a really common challenge in front of us. We, we need to come together with a common voice. And so really proud of you, Harvey, for getting out there and letting the president know, you know, what your feelings are about, you know, what our foreign policy is doing right now and what it's doing to other people and what it's doing to the world. And I just want to, you know, in the context of, of a physical and a natural scientist, you know, just remind us, you know, right now, it looks like just the statistics suggest 97% of the ecosystems on this planet has had at least one species driven extinct by human actions. of the world's tree species are at risk of extinction, 40% of invertebrate pollinators. So these are really keystone species in our environment. Some of this would be going on regardless of climate change, but climate change stresses everybody. It brings brings stress to all the wildlife and it brings stress to everybody else as well. And it's going to drive human and animal migrations. If we see what we think we're going to see, which is two degrees within two decades, maybe three, we can expect to see some increased risk 
of conflict and, and war because of resource wars. You know, water poverty is going to be an increasing difficulty. As the planet warms, we're going to see a spread of tropical diseases. So malaria vectors, you know, the, the, the mosquitoes that carry these diseases, the, um, the viruses are, are going to have broader ranges, bring it to populations that haven't seen it before. Sea level rise, increased storms, extreme weather events, flooding, mudslides, droughts, wildfires. We just have a whole slew of things that are going to exacerbate every level of stress that every vulnerable member of our global population is confronting right now. It's a disproportionate impact on the poor, disproportionate impact on women, disproportionate impact, of course, on children who are going to inherit all of these challenges, disproportionate impact on people of color. Uh, you know, and, 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 just, and for people who are more concerned about economic issues, we can put it in economic terms. In 2022, in, just within the United States, there was at least 18 $1 billion disasters that are related to climate. In 2023, there were 28. Put that in perspective, before, between 2019 and 2023, the average number was about 20 billion dollar natural disasters related to climate. So this is a huge economic impact. We've got to address it. Cindy brought up so many great uh, ideas. Uh, you know, I, I want to support those. But I also want to remind everybody that at least from, from a scientific perspective, going to zero emissions is no longer enough. Five years ago, I would not have said that. Now, I, I fear that that is exactly what the evidence suggests. I can't claim it with you know certainty, but I, I would say that that seems to be the case. Speaking to my fellow scientists out there, you guys have got to speak up, okay? We need everybody's voice on board. My fellow citizens, we obviously have to fund science. We have to keep these monitoring programs in place. We have to fund the education, the, the shift to renewable energy infrastructure, and we've got to stop these wars. This, this glo global conflict is, uh, you know, it's, it's unbelievable. And one of the key problems that we have, at least in this country, but probably around the world as well, is an unfair tax structure that continues to, to keep the, the lowest economic classes down. We've seen just extraordinary increase in, in the profitability of being a billionaire, of having tons of money and capital gains instead of actual labor. I guess the last thing I, I just I have to say once again is getting to zero emissions is not probably going to be enough to reestablish a, a, a climate system that is, is going to support human prosperity on a global scale. All those, those animal and, and plant migrations, that's going to affect our crops. We're going to see a shift in what countries are having a high agric agricultural yields, and that's going to drive even further stress. In order to maintain some form of, of prosperity, we're really going to have to start investing in not only how we get beyond carbon emissions, but what we're going to do to draw some of that back and that includes things like defore, uh, uh, reforesting on a mass scale and get these forests back in play. I mean, this is one of the real problems with a warming world. The Amazon and some of our big forests are even going to be at risk. So there's just a, a number of things. I hope that people can uh, hear each and one, everyone's voice here and, uh, and take it to heart when we go to the polls and make our voices heard. Uh, Jim, Harvey, thank you for uh, allowing me to speak. And Cindy, it was a pleasure uh, having the opportunity to speak with you uh, here on uh, VFP Radio Hour. What an amazing group. Thanks, Dr. Clay. That, Jim, yeah. please call me Omar. This is Dr. Okay, Clay. Okay, Omar. <laughs> I know. Yep. So, Cindy, you did recommend a song. Tell us about this song and uh, we'll actually play it. Oh, thank you for this. You know, last year when I was on VFP Radio Hour talking about COP27, one of the things that I mentioned to you is that while I was at COP, I, I met a journalist there um, who was living in Gaza. Can you give us his name? Uh, Rami Al-McGarry. Rami, R-A-M-I, 
Al-Megari. And I was actually shocked that the Israeli let him out to even come to COP. Um, he didn't have enough money to stay very long, uh, but he actually works for um, Pacifica Radio. We exchange phone numbers, and I have talked to him a couple or three times. And then when this thing hit, what's going on in Gaza right now, I, I tried to get a hold of him, and I didn't get a response. And I was frankly really afraid. Uh, you know, I was able to get a hold of Chris Hedges and he was directed me to a list of journalists because they're being targeted and he wasn't on the list. So I had hopes that he would survive. I reached out to him again uh, this week and he got back to me oh. with the most wonderful news that he and his family are alive. It was a very, very short message that they were alive and they were forcibly uh, displaced. So I have no idea where he is displaced to, mm -hmm. but he was grateful. He said, thank God. So I, I mean, of course they've lost everything and I don't know what physical or psychological shape they anybody could be after they get out of something like that, mm -hmm. but he's alive. And oh, that, that was a relief. I have other friends that have people are in Gaza. And of course the people that are still there are truly suffering. He's alive and well. And so I, I was circulating this song, We Will Not Go Down, because when I heard it, I, it just really, really touched me. And I actually listened to it many times. And um, I sent it out to my friends and asked them uh, to listen to it for Rami. So let's let's play it again. We Will Not Go Down and listen to it, uh, thinking of, of the people in Gaza and what they've been through and send them our love and whatever help we can possibly offer. Thank you so much. All right. Here is We Will Not Go Down, song for Gaza, Palestine, sung by Michael Hart. A blinding flash of white light lit up the sky over Gaza tonight. People running for cover not knowing whether they're dead or alive They came with their tanks and their planes With ravaging fiery flames And nothing remains Just a voice rising up in the smoky haze We will not go down in the night You can burn up our mosques and our homes and our schools But our spirit will never die We will not go down in Gaza tonight Women and children alike Murdered and massacred night after night while the so-called leaders of countries afar Debated on who's wrong or right But their powerless words were in vain And the bombs fell down like acid rain But through the tears and the blood and the pain You could still hear that voice through the smoky haze We will not go down in the night without a fight You can burn up our mosques and our homes and our schools 